Welcome back. Um, this is session eight of our series on Revelation, looking at chapter 15 and 16. And I'm here with Hannah again. I might just begin by praying. Um, Lord, just uh, I want to say thank you for the things that you've shown us and revealed to us um, through coming to the earth, through the scriptures that have been left for us to read and through your eternal spirit that just lives in us. And we just want to grasp something more today about the cross and the significance of your saving work. Um, just grow our perspective, expand our view, lift our faith. We just trust that your spirit will be at work and that your word will feed us well. Um, and we look to you to just um, reveal yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're, we're moving now quite rapidly towards the climax of the book of Revelation. We've only got a few chapters to go. And what John's starting to pick up is the great themes of the Old Testament, one by one, and and you, you, you're seeing these themes play out in his his visions of the end of things. So if you if you remember back to the last chapter, he he picked up the that the whole idea um, that's that's part of the Israelite story of first fruits mm-hmm. and harvest mm-hmm. and the, and a wedding feast and and this becomes a um, uh, a symbolic picture of the journey towards the end that, that he'll return to in in um, coming chapters. Well, in chapter 15 and 16, we see a new great theme picked up, which is the which is the theme that comes out of the Old Testament of an exodus, a way out for the covenant people of God, where he which goes back to um, that story of um, Yahweh's deliverance of Moses and the Israelites out of Egypt mm-hmm. and the humbling of Pharaoh and the defeat of Pharaoh's army in the sea mm-hmm. um, and, and then, then taking the Israelites on that, on that journey through the wilderness to the promised land. This really is the big theme um, in these two chapters that we're going to have a look at today. Um, and the other thing that I think is quite significant to think about in relation to these two chapters is um, as we've gone through the book of Revelation, the work of the cross has always sort of been there, but it's often been implied or it's been the thing that you assume and then and then it, um, the focus has been on um, the application of the cross in heaven with the defeat of the angels or the application of the cross in the gospel proclamation on the earth, etc. Yeah. What we have what we have in these chapters is a real zeroing in on the cross from the perspective of heaven, which is um, quite interesting because it's different to how we encounter the work of the cross personally and individually. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives you a much broader perspective on how God's redemptive purpose is at work through the cross and what he's actually how he's actually setting things to right through this this um, work of Jesus on the cross mm-hmm. so that's really um, going to be the focus using the picture of the Exodus 
to explore the significance of the cross. Um, we'll, we'll start off by just let, letting Hannah read it to us and then we'll um, pick up chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15. Seven angels with seven plagues. I saw in heaven another great and marvellous sign. Seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image, and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God, and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen, and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Revelation chapter 16, the seven bowls of God's wrath. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty. True and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its waters dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. 
They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne, saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon them and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Okay, chapter 15 begins. I saw in heaven another great and marvellous sign. So John sees another sign in heaven. Before we move on, let's just um, remind ourselves, because it's so important to understand this, what is the significance of a sign in heaven? Well, a sign points to something else. So a sign in heaven would point to a reality on earth. Yeah, a corresponding, yeah. So, so the real thing that's happened has happened on the earth. The yeah. sign in heaven helps you understand the corresponding reality. Good. That's really important because um, uh, that's going to unlock for us what's going on here. Seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last because with them God's wrath is completed. Now that's another important bit of information. Um, If you recall back in our study of Revelation, Mm. We've had these series of seven judgments. Mm. Um, first of all, do you remember what the sets of seven have been? Um, we had seven seals to yep. begin with and then seven trumpets. Right, we had seven seals, seven trumpets. Now we have the last seven, the seven plagues. And um, John's telling us that this is the last, this is the end. Um, with, with this, the judgment's over. God, yeah. God's wrath has been will be satisfied. Um, it will be complete. Mm. Um, that's important to understand. So we're at our final set of seven. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea, those who'd been victorious over the beast in his image and over the number of his name. And they held harps given them by God and they sang a song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Okay. Um, a huge clue here. What's the sign? What's the picture? Where's your mind go um, if if you're someone who knows the scriptures and the story of God's um, relationship with human beings that goes right back to the beginning? Where does your mind go when, when you see this picture of God's people standing on a shore singing a new song, celebrating a victory? What's going on? Mm. Well, it, it even references Moses. They sang the song of Moses. So my mind goes to um, Moses and the Israelites 
um, after the Egyptians had been destroyed in the sea and they were the Israelites were freed. Yeah, yeah. So the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. Good. I think that, is, that that's exactly where, where John's taking us here. So um, he's using this picture of the Exodus and the defeat of Egypt and the deliverance of Israel um, as a sign for something going on, on in the earth with God's covenant people um, winning a victory over Babylon, um, the symbolic enemy of God's people in this book, and celebrating that victory in a song of deliverance. Okay, to understand or to unlock how this chapter plays out, it's going to be very helpful to go back and have a look at the original song of Moses that this um, this whole picture is built on. So um, we'll take you back to Exodus chapter 15, um, and it will take a bit of time because it's, it's a whole chapter here, but if we can understand the context of this chapter, you'll see so much of it play out in Revelation. Um, this is a really important point about how the New Testament uses Old Testament uh, quotations. Mm. Very often, it's much more important to understand the context of an Old Testament reference yeah. than it is to just find the quote back in the Old Testament. Just going and reading one verse often doesn't unlock what the New Testament writer's doing. Yeah. New Testament writers don't quote the Old Testament like we quote in an essay yeah. where you sort of go and find your, your snappy little phrase and include it in your essay to back up your argument. Mm-hmm. That's not what's going on here. Um, and this isn't just true of Revelation. This is true of the whole of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. You'll see it in the Gospels. You'll see it in the letters. Um, when New Testament writers quote the Old Testament, more often in their mind is they've got the context of a passage or a quote mm-hmm. Um, and, they're, and they're wanting that context to inform how you read what's going on in the New Testament. Okay. So it's really important when you go back, not just to find the, the, the one-sentence quote, but to read a whole section and understand what's the context, what's the story, what's going on here that's going to help unlock what the New Testament writer is trying to say. So we're going to take some time just to have a look at... Um, Exodus chapter 15. And probably, Han, I think the way to do it is we'll, as we read a bit, um, we'll stop. I'll get you to stop and we'll just talk about it um, progressively. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. Okay. What what are you seeing here? What are the the Israelites expressing here about their God? God has delivered them. Yep, God has delivered them. How do they know that? How do they know that this God is our God and he's delivered us? Like it's an obvious thing, but how do they? What are, what's focused on that God about God that shows them that He's their God and their deliverer? He 
he's hurled the horse and its rider into the sea. Yeah, it's not it's not a little point to make. This is a really, really significant thing to understand. Um when when Greek thinking got mixed up in theology mm. in, in the early centuries of the church, mm. what started to happen is God's attributes came to be these abstracted things like God is love, mm. and, and 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 the the old old sort of um, theologians trained in Greek philosophy would start to philosophize about pure love, etc. That's not how the the ancient Hebrew people thought about the qualities of God. Mm. They didn't um, they di- didn't ever think in terms of abstractions mm. or things that you could observe about God from a distance and make a judgment about. Mm. We've talked about this this in other ways before. Yeah. You, you can't sit as an observer of God and work out what He's like. Mm. How do they know that God is love? It's because he's loved them. They've experienced his love. So for for the ancient Hebrews, everything they ever know about God is because God has acted that way towards them. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a really, really important idea that that should help us in our reading of the whole of Scripture. Mm -hmm. God reveals himself to us through acting towards us in mm-hmm. a particular way. Mm-hmm. So all of these things, God is faithful. What does that mean? Well, it means he's been faithful to us. We've mm-hmm. experienced his faithfulness. Yeah. God is righteous. Well, it, don't have an abstracted sort of idea of a pure God who sits up there and does right things. God is righteous means God has acted righteously towards us. Yeah. That is, he's responded in covenant in a right way every time. Yeah. Um, God is holy. God is merciful. God is compassionate. God is love. All of these things, if you're trying to understand what Scripture is saying about who God is, mm-hmm. always begin with the question, how has God acted towards us in Mm. this way and that there you'll find the answer Mm. um so here we're seeing it so strongly in this song of moses um they're celebrating the fact that god is a deliverer god is their deliverer and how do they know because he's thrown the horse and rider into the sea he's actually acted towards them Mm. and um saved them from the egyptians um and for, for them it, it, it reinforces he is our covenant God. Mm. He's come through for us. Okay, let's read a bit more. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Isn't it interesting? That sort of just underlines what I've said. Yeah. That it, it, it's just... What are they celebrating? God has acted. What God has done. Okay? Keep going. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. Okay. 
Now, I'll actually read one more section and then we'll, then we'll have a chat. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Okay, so this, this dramatic deliverance of Israel um, is uh, throwing the horse and rider into the sea, shattering the enemy, is, is just um, celebrated over and over again. What we're seeing, though, here is something really important for our study of Revelation. What we're seeing is that there's two sides to this exodus event. One side is what God does towards his covenant people. But what's the other side? Um, what else are they celebrating? God's judgment on Egypt. Yeah, that God has, that God has poured out his wrath on Egypt. Mm. And that's, this is really, really important for chapter 15 and 16 of Revelation. When we're understanding the Exodus... Uh, we need to be thinking from two sides. One side is God's dramatically delivered his people. He saved them and brought them through the sea and out onto the dry land and they're safe from Egypt. But the other thing that he's done is he's brought his enemies low. He's shattered his enemies, Mm. which has established his greatness it says here, mm. he's unleashed his burning anger. That is his wrath, um, and it consumed his enemies. Um, he's humbled them. They've boasted um, before him, and he's blew with his breath and sunk them in the sea. So, mm. so what we're seeing is this is the revelation of God's righteousness mm. in two ways. One way is he's come through for his covenant people, mm. but the bringing down of his enemies is also a righteous act. Mm. It reveals a God who's committed to setting things to right. And that involves saving who he'll save, Mm. but it also involves defeating and overwhelming anyone who would stand up and challenge his sovereignty or or his authority by a demonstration of of great power. Um, so there's a there's there's an aspect of um, uh, what am I trying to say? It's an incredibly powerful work. He's acted powerfully, mm. but that that power has been experienced in two different ways. Mm. For some, it's been oh deliverance, and He is our God, mm. and for others, it's been uh oh, <laughs> you know, we we've taken on more than we can to here and we've got actually smashed and defeated and obliterated. Yeah. Okay. Um, hold that thought for when we get back to Revelation because it's the key to 15 and 16. Okay, verse 11. Keep reading a bit more. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. Okay, so from the perspective of the saved people, mm. that's the message they're getting. Who is like you? Mm. You have no equal. Um, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. Okay, um, they, and it continues. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. 
In your strength you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. Yep. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Okay, we'll stop there. So an amazing picture. How does how does the song end? What are they set? What are what are the Israelites celebrating from verse thirteen to seventeen? Um, that God will continue to deliver them. Yeah, because He's acted this way, we we can trust and have hope and faith that He's going to continue. Um, mm. and, and, and the story is, is of believing in his unfailing love to continue to lead the people. And, and there's a journey that they're going on, and where's it going to end up? So they've been delivered. They're on the edge of the sea singing and dancing, but they, that's not the end of the journey. Where, what's their hope? Where's God going to bring them? To his dwelling place, to right. the mountain. Right. He's going to plant them on Mount Zion. Um, plant them in their inheritance, and there the Lord will reign forever and ever. Now, um, not wanting to steal our own thunder, but that's the end of the book of Revelation. Um, What we're going to see in the next few chapters is um, the crushing of enemies, Mm. 17 and 18, then the Lord leading his people on a great white horse to the promised land, mm-hmm. 19 and 20, and then 21 and 22 is about establishing them on Mount Zion in the city of city of um, God that will come down from heaven, mm-hmm. and there he will reign with his people forever and ever. Yeah. So it's the Exodus story that's going to shape the, 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 the whole way that John's thinking about the, the end, how the end of things will come about. Mm. Um, it's a really powerful, um, significant picture. And on the way, um, the nations will be dealt with. Um, that's, that's an important part as well that we'll see in the next couple of chapters. Okay, so let's go back to Revelation with that, with, with that song in mind. Now, one of the things that's interesting about the song that John hears in his vision where he sees this sign in heaven is that you you have the covenant people of God with harps singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So it's like they're singing two songs. We need to understand why why John points out there's two songs here. But then we actually hear the song. (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> Excuse you. Um, then we actually hear the song, and it's only one song. We yeah. don't hear two songs. We hear one song. Mm-hmm. So let, let's uh, read the song, just remind ourselves about the song, and then talk about what's going on here. What point is John making? Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. 
Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. That last line is the key to everything. Okay, what are we what are we making of two songs to start with? What's going on? Do you think here? Remember where in? Oh, what 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 are you thinking? Um. What's it bringing together? They're celebrating two events. Yes. Okay. So from the perspective of the earth, there's two events. There's the Song of Moses, yeah. which is the deliverance of Israel, God's covenant people yeah. in ancient times out of Egypt. What's the Song of the Lamb? Um, that God has saved and judged the world again through Jesus' death. Yes, there's been a new exodus event in the work of the Lamb. He's worked a new exodus for all the people, for all the, the peoples world, of the yeah. whole world. Um, um, that that um, is about save, saving. And it's, it's about, there's so many parallels, isn't there, between the first exodus event mm-hmm. and the new exodus in Christ. One of the main um, uh motifs or pictures from the Old Testament that's picked up again and again and again in the by the New Testament writers is this idea that Jesus' work is a new exodus. Mm. In a sense, the whole of the Gospel of Mark is built around that idea. In some, you could make a case that the whole Gospel of John is built around that idea. Mm. Um, it's returned to regularly by Paul in in his letters. The book of Hebrews picks up the theme of a new exodus Mm. and God taking his people into a Sabbath rest. This this idea that that, um, the work of Jesus, the saving work of Jesus through the cross as a new exodus is is one of the most important ideas in, in the New Testament. And what John's doing here is he's saying the Old Testament exodus and the new te- the new exodus in Christ mm. are both being sung about on the edge of the sea here, and this is mm. the song. Why one song? What does it tell you about the perspective of heaven? Because I'm just guessing, but is it because it's the same God who's doing the same thing? Yeah, I think from the perspective of the earth, historically, it's two events. Yeah. From the perspective of heaven, it's one salvation event. God's working to save his people. And from yeah. the perspective of heaven, uh, the first uh, saving of the God's covenant people and the, the new exodus event where God saves his covenant people, from the perspective of heaven, it's the one and the same event. It's God, God being faithful to his covenant redeeming his people in love. Um, It's all part of the one redemptive work, the one redemptive story. And so it's conflated into one song. Does that make sense? Yeah. The goal's the same. And both events are going to be consummated at the end of Revelation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the the, the promise to Israel becomes a promise to the whole world that's ultimately it, it was fulfilled in time and space with them entering Canaan and etc. Yeah. But the prophets understood well and truly that that wasn't the final meaning of the picture of entering your inheritance. Yeah. 
Um, the end of Isaiah, and there's so many places in the prophets that where the prophets are recognizing, no, there's a bigger thing God is doing here. Yeah. This is just this is this is like a foretaste. Yeah. This is like a foreshadowing. But um, it's like that picture when we're talking about prophecies, like looking at a mountain range from a distance, and it all looks mm. like um, one range until you look really closely and you see there's bigger mountains behind the first range of mountains yeah. and etc kind is it kind of like the the promised land is a sign of the real thing that's going to happen at the end yeah the ultimate reality is what is actually revealed by jesus work yeah i think that that is the picture okay so to sum up what are we seeing this great sign that john sees in heaven is that the sign is all about a picture of a new exodus event from the perspective of heaven. What's the corresponding reality on the earth? Well, what it's actually pointing to is the victory of Jesus' work on the cross. Mm -hmm. Um, That is the great new exodus event that's being celebrated here as a sign in in heaven. Um, The delivery of God's covenant people out from bondage And we're going to see in the next chapter the other side of that Exodus event, which which is to do with dealing with the the enemies of God. Mm. But it'll go on to to um, Revelation will go will go will go on to develop the idea that God's covenant people are being taken on a journey um, to their inheritance to dwell with God in his city in Mount Zion where he'll reign forever and ever. So the first half of chapter 15, John's really focused on this picture of the people of God um, singing a new song of deliverance, celebrating um, victory over the beast and his image. The second half of chapter 15 John returns to the, the, the very first thing he's told us in this vision, which, which is about the seven angels with the seven last plagues mm-hmm. um, that re, uh, reflect the, the completion of God's wrath. So what happens from verse 5 is um, in heaven the, the tabernacle of the testimony is opened. That, that is the, the heart of the the holiest place of God's temple, of God's life, that is. And out of out of the temple come seven angels with the seven plagues and they're dressed in uh, uh, clean, shining linen and wear golden sashes. Um, and then with this, the four living creatures, they're given seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever Um and no one can enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So what, what, we're, what we're beginning to see now is the outpouring of this final set of seven um, and the plagues have been conflated with these bowls that have come out of the, the temple in heaven and these bowls are going to be poured out on the earth in chapter 16. Now, just before we start chapter 16, it's important just to to reflect on um, what we're looking at. 
what we're looking at is a work of the cross as well, mm-hmm. but it's the other side of the work of the cross. Mm-hmm. Um, remember we were talking about Exodus having an Exodus having two sides to it, the hardening of Pharaoh and the humbling of Egypt mm-hmm. and the defeat of Egypt, mm-hmm. as well as the deliverance of God's people. Well, what we're going to focus in Chapter 16 is how God's going to deal with his enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and it's important that we recognise this is an outworking of the cross. When we, when we individually experience the cross, we experience it as a, as a personal encounter in a sense, don't we? Mm. So why is the cross significant for, for me? Is that mm. sort of our question? Mm. Um, well, it's because in it we experience... Um, Jesus forgiving us, mm-hmm. dealing with our sin, mm-hmm. make, washing us clean and inviting us to share, share in his life. Mm. So, so for, for us individually, it's a personal experience of redemption, mm. of being delivered, set free. I'm not saying that's not significant. It's hugely significant. In fact, it's the most significant thing going on in the cross, but it's not the only thing going on mm-hmm. with God's work on the cross. There's an other side to God setting things right that involve a picture that's much, much bigger than our individual experience. Mm-hmm. God's doing things on a cosmic scale on the cross that we can barely grasp mm-hmm. to do with bringing down principalities and powers, dealing with the great enemies of mm. Yahweh and the Father and the Son, mm. um, you know, the great enemies of Satan, um, of death, of sin and mm. all evil. Mm. And what, what, what we're getting a bit of a glimpse of in Chapter 16 is how, how the cross actually deals with God's enemies on the earth. That's what's going on here. So these plagues are poured out on the earth. Now, why why are plagues significant here? Well, that's what happened to Egypt. Do you remember the story of um, the plagues of Egypt? How many before the Exodus? Exodus. Yeah. Yes, I do. What's your question? Let's do a little refresher on what 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 was that story about? Pharaoh wouldn't let the Israelites go, so God sent plagues. Right. So Moses turns up into the court of Pharaoh day day after day and says, you know, let my people go, speaking on behalf of Yahweh. Pharaoh refuses, and so progressively judgments in the form of plagues Mm. rain down on Egypt. Do you remember what they were? Can you remember some of them? I can remember some. I remember they were frogs. Yep, yep. So there was Frogs. Um, the Nile turned to blood. I think that was the first one. Yes. Um, which is sort of the the, the Nile being the, the the life water of Egypt. So turning that to blood sort of destroys their source of life. Um, boils break out on mm. people's skin. Locusts. Um, yep, yep. You have you have a plague of gnats or locusts. You have massive hailstorms. Mm. Um, darkness, a plague of uh, darkness covering Egypt, and then finally the angel of death comes and kills the firstborn mm. of every Egyptian household. But but the Israelites are protected if they've put the 
Passover oh. blood of the, the lamb on their, the lintel of their doorposts. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the story of the plagues in Egypt. Now, it's very significant that, that these last um, judgments of God are in the form of plagues. What's going on here? Why in the form of plagues? Think about think about what happened. What was so devastating about the plagues on Egypt? How can we talk about that? They um, affected everybody. They were sort of. Yep. Yep. Yeah. How, how did Pharaoh respond to each of these plagues? Um, what does it keep saying about? That Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's a really significant part of what's going on with how God's judging Egypt, that rather than the, these dramatic overwhelming demonstrations of God's power causing someone to go, yeah, God, you're much more powerful and I'll yield, I'll bend my knee, mm. what you see is this process of hardening that goes on in Pharaoh where he, his heart's hard and he refuses to do the thing that Moses asks and so the plagues just continue one, one after the other till, till eventually he's overwhelmed and he just tells them to go. Mm. That's really quite significant in terms of, I think, what's going on with the, with these judgments. So before, before we apply it to Revelation, just uh, hardening is quite a difficult thing to make sense of mm. um, because you see back in the, in the text in Exodus two things, two, two perspectives. Mm. It says that God hardened, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Mm-hmm. It also says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Mm-hmm. And so th- there's, there's something going on where God's at work, but Fa- Pharaoh's responsible at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it, it's in, important to understand um, what, God's, what God's doing here with Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. So what do, you th- what do we think it means that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart? What is that? Have you got an idea about that? Um, no, Not, <laughs> that's all right. Um, I think I think what what a helpful way to understand this is when when someone is in rebellion against God, mm. unless God would reveal to you his heart, Mm. you don't have a way to get out of your rebellion. Mm. Does that make sense? Unless God would enter, you can't solve the problem for yourself once you're a rebel. That's a really important thing to understand. Now, the old theologians called that the bondage of the will. The idea is once you're in sin, you can't find a way out find a way out on your own. You need yeah. God's gracious work to intervene 
um, to give your way out. Mm. So when it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, I think what's happening is God's saying or, or God, God in his relating to Pharaoh is not giving him a way out. Mm. He's leaving him in his own rebellion. He's not providing a means of repentance. He's not revealing himself in a way that Pharaoh can um, soft-heartedly draw mm. draw near and yield. Yeah. Um, that that's I think that that's the really so when it's not so much that God's actively going in and um, hardening a heart that would otherwise be soft. That's not what's happening. Yeah. What's happening is God's recognizing a person's hard-hearted, and mm. He's not providing a way to for that person to get out of the situation that mm. they're in, and that's described as God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now. Where do I get that idea from? Well, you see it with Cain fundamentally. He's the best place to go to because yeah. God has a whole conversation about this process with Cain. Yeah. You see it with Pharaoh really strongly. You see it with Judas as well in the New Testament. God, God handles Judas in a similar way. Uh-huh. Um, so it's, it's right that we can say two things at once. Yes, God does harden Pharaoh's heart because he doesn't provide a way of repentance. But but we also can say Pharaoh hardened his own heart. He made a choice mm. to rebel and resist God's word and not yield and not repent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so both of those things are true at once. Mm. This might be a bit of a sidetrack, but is what you're saying that, like we often say, oh, we need soft hearts to experience a revelation of God, but... It's what you're saying that actually the re- what makes our hearts soft is the revelation yeah. of God. Yeah, it's how the word of God comes to you. That is so important to understand. Yeah. It's God's initiative that softens our hearts. Yeah. We don't soften our own hearts. Yeah. Um, and that's really important to understand. Now, th- this is really interesting. Have you ever, have you ever thought this question? Um. Have you ever thought, why doesn't God just do something really powerful yeah. and show himself in an overwhelming way yeah. so that people can just see who he is? Mm. Well, can you see why that's not going to be helpful? What does a demonstration of overwhelming power do to Pharaoh? Does it soften his heart? No. no, it hardens his heart. That's the point. But why, sorry, why does, why wouldn't God reveal himself in a different way, not power, that would soften Pharaoh's heart? Be, because because he, his purpose here is to reveal his righteousness by bringing down Pharaoh and saving Israel. That's his per- that's his purpose. And he says it really clearly. He's going to reveal that, that he's right and everyone else is wrong by bringing down Pharaoh and raising up Israel. That's that's his choice. That's what he chooses to do. But on a personal level, that doesn't seem fair to Pharaoh. 
that he's not given an equal opportunity to know God's love and submit in the way that the Israelites can. There is a way that he could. By? By watching Israel. Through Israel. um, And we see this... Pharaoh's not the place to have this discussion. Cain and Abel's much better. God chooses Abel's sacrifice and doesn't choose Cain. Does he love Cain any less? No. Does Cain have a way of repenting? Yes. What has he got to do? Look at his brother and how his brothers responded and do that. Yeah. So 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 God's word to Cain not accepting his 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 sacrifice is actually a gracious word. What he's saying is your heart's wrong. You've got to come to me another way. Mm. Watch how your brother's done it and do that. So it's through Abel that Cain can find a way back. Yeah. Um what what we're actually seeing here is that this is a picture of Jesus and us. Mm. What's the message of the cross? The message of the cross, the, Jesus' blood speaks a better message than the blood of Abel. What's the point? The point is he's made a response to God that satisfies God. Mm-hmm. Now, you can choose to stand out on your own like Cain and, and refuse to accept the sacrifice that God says the right way to come. Yeah. Or you can choose to come through Jesus. Do you yeah. see? Yeah. So. So when God, when God chooses or not chooses, this is called the doctrine of election, but when God chooses or not chooses, he, he's not being exclusive. He's not saying I'm picking Abel and I'm not picking Cain. Yeah. Election is a way to be gracious to all. What he's saying is I'm picking Abel and that, that, that's, that will show Abel a way to relationship with me, but it will also show the rebel Cain a relationship the way to relationship with me. Now, that's the same for Pharaoh and it's the same for us in relation to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Jesus. Jesus' work on the cross is God saying to the whole world, I don't accept your sacrifices that you're bringing on your own. Yeah. I accept his, yeah. my son. Yeah. Now, if you choose to come to me through him, yeah. then you're, you're, you'll find life. Yeah. We, we come through the elect son. Yeah. Now, what happens with Cain is he refuses. Yeah. And God says, come on, come on, soft, you, you know, sins that you're crouching at your door. Mm. Um, beware. You know, don't think about your brother like that because what happens in Cain's heart is he just wants to kill his brother mm. because uh, uh, the fact that his brother's righteous just makes him angry with God, not so much with Abel. His anger is with God. Yeah. Now, that's the same with Jesus, isn't it? What's what's going on with with the whole world now? Is you've got some people that come soft-hearted, mm-hmm. and others in their in their anger with God reject the the Messiah. That's what's going on. So, have I sort of in a very long-winded way answered your question? Um, what were we talking about? We were talking about Pharaoh having his heart hardened. Um, being a work of God, but it, it's also a work that he's responsible for. And we were, we were raising that question, have you ever thought 
about why doesn't God just show himself really powerfully yeah. in an overwhelming way? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the whole point is a demonstration of God's power, which is what the plagues are, mm-hmm. a demonstration of raw power doesn't result in soft hearts. It results in hard hearts. Mm-hmm. That's why God doesn't come to us that way because mm-hmm. it doesn't draw us to his love or his life. It results in hardening. Um, it's actually a really helpful thing to to see and understand. Mm-hmm. So, what are we what are we seeing back in Revelation? Well, God's going to pour out plagues on Babylon or or the kingdoms of the earth, the kingdoms yeah. of the world, and and you can imagine, you know, the questions of these first century readers would be, you know, why 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 isn't Rome in terms of it, its its leaders and nations and systems? Why isn't it all just responding to the gospel, this powerful work of God that's de- that's brought this new exodus and this deliverance? Well, the message the message here is um, rebellious nations will experience the work of the cross like the plagues of Egypt. Mm. Do you see the point? Yeah. It won't result in softening. It will result in hardening. Um, and part of the, the outworking of the cross in the world will be, yeah, individuals will come in one by one, experiencing forgiveness and salvation. But Babylon and the kingdoms of the earth, they won't repent. What they'll experience is the other side of the Exodus. They'll experience Egypt's version of the Exodus and they'll be humbled and brought low like Egypt. Now, that's, that's, that's basically what, what now happens. You get a whole series of um, plagues poured out on the earth. So if you go through the plagues... Um, they pretty much mirror the plagues of Egypt. So you, you have the um, the first angel pours out a bowl on the land and people are covered in sores, those who had the mark of the beast. Then there's a plague poured out on the sea and the seas turn to blood and everything dies. So just the, the, the idea of just um, life being taken away from the kingdoms of the world. Then you have um, the rivers. And people are given blood to drink. Um, mm. That one's particularly significant because um, the, an angel speaks at that time and says, you are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged, for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. Mm. So this is a case of what we were talking about before. Mm. God handing people over to what they're choosing. Mm. So what are they choosing to do? Well, they're choosing to be bloodthirsty. Mm. They're choosing to kill Christians, Mm. shed their blood. And so God hands these human beings over to what they want. That is, okay, drink it. Drink blood. blood. That's the picture here. Mm. Um, The fourth angel... um, poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. Look at the response of people. This is the significant thing. 
They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. You see, that's Pharaoh. Mm. That's the response of the Egyptians. So rather than be soft, um, the experience of these plagues hardens people's hearts. They curse God, refuse to repent. Um, This gets repeated again and again. Look, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. So it's really that the the plagues here are really um, overwhelming this Mm. enemy kingdom. This, this version of Egypt that, that in, in Revelation is called Babylon. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. So again, emphasize this, this anger against God and this refusal to repent. Mm. Now, all sorts. You hear all sorts of interpretations of Revelation about these sort of being um, foreshadowing end time events, and we're going to have, you know, the sun darkened and rivers turned to blood and whatever. And I don't think that's what's going on at all here. Mm. I think what's going on is John's providing a picture of how the work of the cross is going to impact on. Um, the powerful rebellious systems and nations and principalities and powers that have set themselves up to oppose um, God's rule. Mm -hmm. And um, the exodus is going to involve the saving of a covenant people, but it's going to involve the bringing low of, of all of those powers that have set themselves up against God. And that's going to happen from when Jesus resurrects to when he and ascends back to heaven to when he comes again. So this whole period of the last days, mm-hmm. I would say, you are seeing the outworking of certainly the first five plagues mm-hmm. um, because they're a picture of, you know, why, why are powerful systems and nations not turning in repentance to God? Well, it's because the work of the cross actually results for them in a hardening, not in a softening. Um, they experience that they they'll experience the cross, but it won't result in redemption. It'll result in um, cursing God and refusing to repent. As we approach the the final two bowls poured out on the earth in judgment, I think it's good to just pause and recognise. John's doing something here that, in terms of the the way he presents this. Um, last section of the vision that's quite mysterious um, and it's like I, I feel I do feel a little bit like um, I can see the parts but how they exactly all go together um, it still feels quite mysterious to me but I'll explain to you um, what I'm seeing in terms of the parts I think the first thing to say and re-emphasize is um, it's 100% right to recognise what we're watching here is an outworking of the cross. But John is always thinking about the cross in three different ways. Do you remember from our early sessions, we always, he always thought he always thinks about it in terms of the past, the present and the future. Mm. In terms of the past, um, 
he's looking back to Calvary and Jesus' work, mm. um, dying, dying on a cross for our sins. Mm. In terms of the present, for him the present was um, the, the period of the, the age of the church where the gospel's going out into all the world mm. and people are, are responding to the cross or encountering the cross by faith. Yeah. Um, or in the case of those, those being hardened by a lack of faith, um, he also looks at a, a time where there'll be a final consummation, that is, the work of the cross will be made manifest or unveiled for everyone to see. It won't be about faith anymore. Everyone, whether, you, whether you've been part of God's people or not, will recognise the truth about the, um, the king and his work. Mm. Now, what's really um, interesting about the last section of Chapter 16 and the, the last two um, uh, bowls that are poured out on the earth mm. is you th- there is there is past present and future elements seemingly going on at the same time mm-hmm. um, in relation to to the work of the cross here and we'll just we'll just um, pick them pick them out a little bit I'll, I'll, I think I'll first talk about um, the fu- the future aspect. So with the with the sixth um, bowl, so I'm in verse uh, sixteen, verse twelve. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and it, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kingdom kings from the east. Mm-hmm. Um, then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs that came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. These are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Okay. I think what, what's starting to happen in 6 and 7 is there's an aspect that's looking towards the final consummation of the end of the age. This is the final defeat of Babylon that we're looking at. The, the end of all things. And what what John picks up here is the prophetic words in places like Daniel and Isaiah that um, that predicted the downfall of the original Babylon in the in these ways. So the original Babylon fell because the great river Euphrates dried up. And it allowed the Persian, basically the Persian king cleverly diverted the river, mm. um, the, the Euphrates River that flowed through Babylon. Mm. And Babylon was this impregnable city with massive walls and, and no one ever thought it could possibly be defeated. And the clever Persian king um, diverted the river, which allowed the Persian troops to basically walk under the walls on the riverbed, and that's how they entered the city mm. and overcame Babylon. And Babylon fell in a night, like it fell dramatically, very, very quickly. Yeah. Um, I think that's what's being picked up here. The The end of things is going to be sudden and dramatic and it, and it will all come, it will all come down. Mm. Um, like Babylon did overnight in quite an unpredictable way. Mm. I think that's part of what's going on here. 
Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. This is interesting. Frogs are only mentioned in the Bible in relation to the plagues in Egypt. Mm. There's no other mention of that animal in the whole Bible. That's quite interesting. Mm. Um, but they were considered an unclean animal. So I think that's what's been pick, picked up here and why they're being picked on. Mm. Um, so basically what happens is the, these evil spirits that look like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. So you, can you see related to chapters we've done already there's a sense of a false trinity here. Mm. You, you have figures we've seen before, the dragon, who is? Satan. Satan. And then you then you have um, the beast, who's, who's like the human mouthpiece or figurehead leading the, um, leading the um, kingdom, kingdom of wouldn't the world. The, wouldn't the false prophet be the figurehead and the beast be more referring to the beast out of the sea? Maybe. Yep, you could be right. But, but, but this, this, this unholy trinity are the leaders, I, I think you would assume, mm. um, and the powers at work in this um, rebellious kingdom of the world. Mm. Um, and these, these spirits perform miraculous signs that deceive the kings of the world. So the, the whole point, the whole point is that um, I think the emphasis on their mouths it's to do with their speaking, mm. and that um, you have demonic forces at work deceiving the kings of the world, um, bringing bringing the forces against God and against His kingdom together. And they're, they're completely deceived. They, they think they're going to just gather to exterminate the people of God. But what we'll see in the coming chapters is the gathering actually results in their own judgment before the great king, mm. um, like, like we saw in Joel chapter 3. So I think, I think that's part of the, the picture of what's, what's going on with the sixth judgment. Then you have verse 15, which is really interesting. I behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so mm. that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Mm. Do you recognise that? Jesus says that. That's Jesus' words. So, um, um, he um, it's in talking marks, and I'm presuming John's hearing these words in in his vision of heaven. Why do you think that they're in there now? What's the point being made? Have a think about it. And while you do, let's just let's just have a read the verses in Matthew twenty, um, chapter twenty-four, where Jesus actually says this, and it's in the middle of teaching about the signs of the end of the age. That's that's quite significant as well. So just read forty-two to forty-four. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you, so you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Okay. So what's the message out of this about the very end of things? 
That it will be sudden and unexpected? It'll be sudden and unexpected. And I think that, that it's a bit of a warning and maybe a warning to the church as well. Don't try and work it out. You're not going to be able to. Yeah. These signs these signs aren't so that you can predict and prepare, and prepare in advance. You're not going to be. You're, the call of the church is um, I'm going to come like a thief stay awake be alert all the time it could be it could be today mm. it could be next week it could be it could be any time mm. you won't be able to work it out by that's not the purpose of the signs that's really clear yeah. um uh, then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon so this is the scene of the final, final cataclysmic battle between the forces of um mm. the great king Jesus and the kingdom of the world. I'm not going to talk about that now because Armageddon becomes really the focus of um, what happens in chapter 17 and 18, but that's what we're preparing for. And then and then you have the seventh angel pouring out his bowl into the air and out of the temple, and there came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Mm. What does that remind you of? It is done. Jesus on the cross? Yeah, Jesus on the cross, enduring the wrath of God in its fullness and saying, and, and absorbing it in his own life mm. and saying, it is finished. Yeah. Um, I think that, that that's a clear um, parallel to um, Jesus on the cross. And we'll, we'll talk in a minute about, oh, well, maybe we can talk now. What's going on here? Well, seven's. What we'll see, what we'll see with seven is it's like all of nature um, is is impacted by this very final bowl. So there's earthquakes and um, flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. Mm-hmm. And verse nineteen, the great city is split into parts and collapses. The cities of the nations collapses, and Babylon is forced to drink. Um, the wine of the fury of God's wrath, and even islands flee away and mountains cannot be found. So this this, this whole um, picture of uh, creation just retreating in the face of just overwhelming, uh, the overwhelming holy wrath of God. And from the sky, huge hailstones, so another connection to the plagues of Egypt mm-hmm. there, of about 100 pounds each fell on men and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. So Mm. the the final judgment doesn't bring about repentance for Babylon. Mm. Babylon's humbled and bought low Mm. and still uh, people are cursing God on account of the plagues. Um, so this overwhelming demonstration of God's power has has destroyed Babylon, but not resulted in repentance. Um, and I I, th- I think that that that's the point about the 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 final consummation in the end of the age, and we'll see more of that when we move into chapter seventeen and eighteen. But there's so- there's something in these last two bowls that I think is looking forward to the time where the work of the cross is uh, and Jesus' person is unveiled in power Mm. um, um, right at the very end of things. But I also think 
that that there's um, a part of what's going on here that's lo looking to um, make connections between um, the, this this series of judgments in the bowls poured out on the earth and the work of Jesus on the cross at Calvary. Think about all the little references mm. through this section that you could connect to um, imagery or things that happen connected with Jesus' work on the cross. Mm. What sorts of things? The the darkness. Yeah, the dark. The the one of the plagues is about um, the, the darkness overwhelming, and that definitely, you know, that's part of the picture of um, what when Jesus it, died. When Jesus died, yeah. Um, there are lots of references to blood. Yeah, lots of references, and and the idea of drinking blood, and yeah, um, yep, yeah, yeah, allusions there. Um, the drinking the cup filled with the wine is what Jesus did before yeah. the cross. Yeah, so that 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 is a reminder back to Gethsemane, where Jesus actually talks about drinking from the. It, may this cup pass from, from me, but not my will, but yours. Mm. So that picture of the cup of wrath. Um, even you are just in these judgments, you who who are and who were the Holy One because you have so judged. That idea that Jesus' work on the cross is um, Jesus accepts, accepts it and receives it as, as God's righteous work. Mm. And it reminds me too of the, um, you know, the two, the two um, people that are crucified on Jesus' right and on his left and how one of them, one of them recognises mm. that Jesus is holy yeah. and, and that he didn't deserve this and, yeah. and the other one's cursing God. And they it's both like, see the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, they're both seeing the same thing, but one is hardened, uh -huh. but one's recognizing, no, you're righteous, and yeah. and I think that it, it reminds me of that too. Um, earthquake. Oh yeah. The other one that I, I was thinking about was um, just before the plague start, and the temple was filled with smoke, uh, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues were completed. So. Sim thinking symbolically, how's that a picture of Jesus' work on the cross? No one can enter the temple until the seven plagues are completed. What what has Jesus' work enabled for human beings? Um, us to enter into God's presence, which is what the temple was for—a yeah. place where you could enter God's presence. Yeah, yeah, and that 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 um, significant symbolic tearing of the veil in the temple yeah. um, that accompanied Jesus' death was like the temple's open now. It's not mm. It's not um, a place that people can't go in. So I, I think there's all of these, there's all of these allusions through this section about the pouring out of God's wrath that John's wanting you to recognise. Part of what he's wanting you to recognise is Jesus has received all of this on yeah. himself, that it's part of his work to deal with all of God's wrath to its last, drinking that cup to its last dregs and being able to proclaim it is finished, mm. it is dealt with. So, so on one level, 
Jesus, uh, these plagues have been endured by Jesus mm. um, fully and completely on, and behalf. on, on, on behalf of all the wickedness and uh, sin and mess of the whole world. Yeah. yeah. But there's another level which is um, you can choose. It's like we were saying before. You can choose in terms of responding to the gospel mm. to uh, let Jesus be a right response to God on your behalf or you can choose to continue to rebelliously try and stand on your own two feet and you can drink the cup of wrath yourself. So the picture at the end of Chapter 16 is one of overwhelming the overwhelming power mm. of the outworking of the cross on Babylon mm-hmm. and that, that, that it, it brings Babylon completely undone. Mm-hmm. But it's important to finish by keeping in mind what's primary and what's secondary. What's primary Mm. is that Jesus has taken on the wrath of God Mm. himself Mm. and he's done all the work for us. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, through, through what he's done, he's worked this amazing new exodus, setting his people free from bondage. And and to faith, um, we, we can and the covenant people of God can draw near, mm. like we've seen in Hebrews twelve over and over again. Yeah. And it's and it's ultimately this amazingly powerful work is is ultimately a revelation of God's heart towards His people, like mm. the ancient Israelites celebrated God's unfailing love, and and talked about how He would. He was majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. Mm. Um, the actual act, the righteous acts of God mm. demonstrate his heart towards his people and it's that that draws us to life. That's the gospel message we have to proclaim, mm. that God loves yeah. and he's done this work to demonstrate that love. Mm. Um, there's a secondary thing going on. Two, though, which is what these plagues are about, and that is if you harden your heart and if you're like Babylon and mm-hmm. and, and these great powers that have set themselves up against God's rule, mm-hmm. you will be brought low in mm-hmm. the end. God's, God will, will bring Egypt and Pharaoh or, in this case, Babylon and the beast and the dragon and the false prophet, um, he will bring them down Um in, in, a, in a devastating judgment. Mm-hmm. And at this stage, in terms of history, that's revealed to faith. That is, it's something that, that um, we can't see with our eyes yet, mm-hmm. but we're trusting him about. Yeah. One day it will be revealed to sight. But God's not going to uh, rush to the very end be- because he mm-hmm. wants people to respond to the cross um, in a way that softens their hearts. Mm. Um, and that's really what um, Paul's picking up on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where, where he talks about the cross being veiled, that idea that, that the cross is an incredible demonstration of God's power, mm. but it's not shown in a way that's overwhelmingly powerful because that doesn't cause people to soften their hearts. Mm. 
Um, it's actually a humble and a veiled presentation that, that um, draws us to faith. So we might just finish by reading a few verses from 1 Corinthians 1 because it reinforces some of the things that we've been talking about in relation to how the cross is at work um, saving and judging. Mm. So just start uh, maybe verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptise but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, when, when we study these chapters in the book of Revelation, sometimes you get to the end of a couple of chapters like we have today and you think, okay, that's all very interesting, but mm. what, what difference does it make? Why, why, is John showing, why is John showing us this? How's it, how's it in the first instance an encouragement to the church in the first century? Yeah. How, how is it also an encouragement to Christians that will come after like us? Mm. So let's just say, gather our thoughts in the last couple of minutes and just say some things that I think are deeply encouraging out of chapter 15 and 16. I think firstly, um, recognise that this new song of deliverance is being sung in heaven and it's being sung not for a work Um, of deliverance that the redeemed are waiting for, Mm. like they're looking forward to something that's going to happen down the track. Mm. They're singing about something that's already finished, Mm. and that's really clear. Um, John's vision is is of a people standing on the shore of the sea celebrating a victory that's already been won, just like the ancient Israelites did Mm. after they escaped from Egypt. 
And you see it in the in the song they sing, your righteous acts have been revealed. Mm. That is the past tense. It's something done. Mm. And we see right at the end of chapter 16 um, a proclamation from the throne. It is done. Um, it's finished. Mm -hmm. um, the work of the cross is complete. Yeah. Um, it's the reality. Jesus has drunk that cup of God's wrath on our behalf. And the result of his work is a new exodus that set people free and sets to right all of, all of God's creation and establishes his kingdom. So that's one, that's the main thing that's going on in chapter 15. Mm. There's a secondary thing going on in chapter 16 too, though, mm. that is encouraging for Christians because it addresses some of the concerns that Christians suffering as part of the church would have. Mm. Um, it would help Christians in the first century and now to understand the impact of Jesus' work in these last days. Mm. You know, for those wondering, where, where is the victory? If the work of the cross is so powerful, why aren't nations streaming into the kingdom of God? Why isn't the gospel proclamation resulting in an impressive flood of, mm. um, you know, peoples and nations coming together around the, the throne and acknowledge the king? Well, John's vision is reminding us that the work of the cross has two results. Yeah. There will be an ingathering of God's people, those people that are drawn to the revelation of God's heart through a work that actually looks weak and foolish. Yeah. And that's what, that's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians. That's how God's done it. Um, it's in, in these last days, it is for those with eyes of faith and it must be this way because encountering God in his raw power mm. doesn't result in a soft heart. It actually results in the opposite. Yeah, like it, Pharaoh. Yeah, like Pharaoh. It results in a hardening. And this is the other side of the times that we live in in these last days. Mm. There is an ingathering, but recognise too the gospel going out into the world will result in a hardening too. For those loyal to Babylon, yeah. that the, the, the great worldly powers, mm -hmm. and God will use that hardening to bring Babylon down. That's what he's doing. Yeah. Um, John makes it clear. Um, the defiance of God's rule, in you know, the gospel gets proclaimed. Mm. And the, the the rejection of that proclamation and the defiance of God's rule is not a sign of the failure of the cross. Mm. It's precisely the opposite. It is how God is judging Babylon and the kingdom of this world. Mm. That That's a really, it, can you see how that's, that would be an encouraging thing for the first century Christians? They'd be looking at the world going, uh Plan A doesn't seem to be working. There's all this hardening and, you know, oppression of the church and, and resistance to the gospel message. And, and John's vision is pointing out to us that's exactly what you expect. Mm. That's what happens when God acts in a new Exodus event. Yeah. Um, it, the Israelites, the ancient Israelites, 
would have responded exactly the same way to Moses, wouldn't they? Until the final unveiling and going through the Red Sea, every day Moses came back after each time Pharaoh said, I'm not letting the people go, they would have been going, uh, the word of God's not working here. Mm. We need a different plan. Yeah. But what what um, events show is that that was God um, hardening Pharaoh for the purpose, and God says this, r- reveals this, for the purpose of bringing glory to his name and bringing Egypt undone. Mm. So hardening is a work of God and a work of man. Human beings are responsible for for cursing God and refusing to repent. Mm. But but in in this in these last days, we should expect that that will part be part of the response to the gospel because that's how that's how God is going to unravel Babylon once and for all. Mm. Um. So the work of the cross is powerful, but that's why Paul's Paul's message in the beginning of 1 Corinthians is so important. It's not available to sight, though. It doesn't look powerful. You've got to be looking in the right way and looking um, and understanding what God's doing to to recognise the the wisdom and power of it. it doesn't look in a worldly worldly way like a tremendous victory or something incredibly powerful, but it is. Mm. The reality is it is. And and the vision, the vision in chapter 15 and 16 strongly reinforces that. The reality is the victory's won. And there will come a time, and we saw that right at the end of chapter 16, and it'll come suddenly and in an unexpected way where this mighty work of the cross will be unveiled to sight once and for all for everyone to see. Mm. And Babylon will be brought low and utterly destroyed for the glory of God's name and for the sake of his kingdom. And that's really what the next two chapters, chapter 17 and chapter 18, are going to look at in more detail. But in the meantime, we live in a world where um, the, the cross is in the field doing a powerful work. And as we proclaim the gospel, uh, um, people will respond, but it'll, it'll be by faith. And like Paul's, saying in, um, like Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians, it won't be something impressive. Yeah. He reminds the Corinthian church where you've come from. You, you, none of you are particularly impressive. Yeah. You came in in your ones and twos and you were pretty lowly and insignificant. But, but that's, how, that's how God has chosen to draw people into the kingdom and into sharing, sharing his life. And Babylon is being dealt with at the same time. That's the message of chapter 15 and 16.